them with power. And he called it the promise of the Father. Secondly, from the day of Pentecost onwards, being baptised in the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit coming on believers, there are various terms which we'll come across um, during our look at this this morning. But, uh, but you know, after that, being baptised in the Holy Spirit was a normal Christian experience, along with repentance and faith and baptism in water. Thirdly, it did not necessarily occur at conversion. So Paul could say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Fourthly, those who received the Holy Spirit knew that something had happened. If they didn't know, or if they knew, others did also. So we're going to explore this under four headings. If you put the slide up, please, Paul. Firstly, the promise of the Father. The promise fulfilled. The normal Christian experience and the manifestation of the Spirit. So for Paul, finding these disciples, it was a reasonable question to ask them whether or not they proved to be Christians because the important thing is that the question led on uh, to Paul explaining the significance of Christian baptism and then being baptised water, in water and then being baptised in the Holy Spirit. So the first point then is the promise of the Father. If as Christians we're going to exercise faith which leads to action, it's important what the object of our faith is. For instance, I could climb on top of this building and stand on the edge and have faith that if I jumped off, um, I wouldn't hurt myself. That would just be faith in faith. It has no reasonable object. All right? And uh, I'd be in a sorry state if I did that. But what I talk about the object, the object of our faith needs to be God and what God has promised. It can't just be wishful thinking. So, for example, when God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, I can have every assurance that if I do that, if I receive Jesus as my Lord and Saviour, if I welcome him into my life, if I believe that he took the punishment that I justly deserve upon himself and I welcome him as Lord and Saviour, then I will be saved. And that's what I did many years ago. And I know that I am saved because I trusted in the word of God. I believe that. And it was right then and it was for there, for then and eternity. So what about the Holy Spirit then? The mighty outpouring that occurred on the day of Pentecost which signalled um, a, a new age of the Spirit for the people of God. A very special age and it signalled the beginning of the church age which will continue until Jesus comes again. And uh, it, that um, Jesus um, promised this uh, in Luke chapter 24, the two occasions when after Jesus had risen from the dead that he promised that these things would occur. Luke 24 and verse 45. Um, it's an occasion when he met with his disciples after his resurrection. And we read this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father to you. But stay in the, search, in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So there, is, there it is again, the promise of the Father. Then on another occasion in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, this is probably the last occasion that Jesus um, talks with his disciples before he's taken up into heaven to return to the Father. And we read this, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then he went on to say, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're told there are about 120 believers and they did just as Jesus commanded. They waited there in Jerusalem about 40 days and then it happened. And this comes to my second point, the promise fulfilled. So Acts chapter 2, we read... When the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost was a Jewish feast around the time of harvest. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Some have argued that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was just for the time of the birth of the church. The church needed to get going. To use a modern term, it needed to be kick-started to get going. And people have said, well... That's why there is this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was a time when the original disciples were and apostles were still around. But now we have the scriptures. We have the full revelation of God now in the Bible that we don't need this experience of the Holy Spirit. However, uh, towards the end of the sermon that Peter preached on that day to the gathered crowd um, who had witnessed this outpouring of the Spirit, um, on the disciples he said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself so how does God call people to himself are you one who, that God has called well, if you've heard the gospel and you've responded to the gospel, then you have been called. God calls people to himself through the gospel. That's how it happens. And he calls us into relationship with himself. It's not just that everyone who's heard the gospel, it's those who hear it and respond are those that God has called to himself, who've responded to the good news about Jesus Christ. In the following chapters of Acts, we see how those filled with the Holy Spirit were indeed witnesses to Jesus. They performed signs and wonders in his name and they spoke boldly uh, to the authorities when they were arrested and they had a boldness and a courage that was clearly 
a work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And as we look at the dynamic um, in the Acts of the Apostles, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it make you hungry for more of God? That we would just love the church to be like that today. I believe there's no reason why it shouldn't be at all, why it shouldn't be like that today. But doesn't it make you hungry and thirsty? Um, my habit is to read the Bible from, from, front, from, from the beginning to the end and then go back and read it again in my daily readings. And uh, I'm always um, filled with anticipation when I come to the Acts of the Apostles. I just love this wonderful story. And, um, you know, seeking more of the Holy Spirit should not just be wishful thinking, but based on the promise of God. What did Peter say? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. So my third point is then the normal Christian experience. Not long after the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people were added to the church, persecution broke out against the Christians and this new movement that was started in Jerusalem um, was scattered um, throughout the, 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 um, the empire in the Mediterranean region and into Asia. These believers were scattered and as they went, they gossiped the gospel, as it said. They couldn't keep it to themselves. This new experience of God that they've received through faith in Jesus Christ. They couldn't keep it to themselves. And where they went, new groups of believers were formed, often without any leaders present to instruct them fully about the faith. This concerned the apostles in Jerusalem and they sent some of their number to the outlying places to make sure that good foundations were being laid in these churches and they would instruct them. We see from what Luke records in Acts that in some cases the Holy Spirit came on people spontaneously but in other cases, uh, maybe it was through ignorance concerning the Holy Spirit, prevented them from receiving, as with the believers at Ephesus that we've been looking at. But um, within a short time, with this scattering that went on, um, uh, Philip, the only named evangelist in the New Testament, um, powerfully preached in Samaria. And of course that was a fulfilment of what Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Philip took the gospel to Samaria. And we read uh, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. These new believers were immediately baptized in water. But subsequently, the apostles in Jerusalem, having heard that the Samaritans had received the word of God, um, came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it says about the Holy Spirit, it says, For he, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptised in the name of Jesus. When the apostles laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Their, their testimony would therefore have been that they were saved and baptised through Philip's gospel preaching, but some days later they received the Holy Spirit as a separate experience. Take Saul, for instance. Saul, who later became Paul, we know he's 
largely famous for his experience on the Damascus Road where Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him and a light shone all around and that would be his time of conversion. And at that time he was blinded by the light. But three days later while he was waiting in a house God sent a disciple named Ananias to the house said you go and pray for, for Paul and he went and he prayed for him and that he would receive his sight and that he would be baptised in the Holy Spirit. So it was for Paul a separate experience. The laying on of hands was a frequent way in which people received the Spirit. And it's helpful that those praying for someone to, to receive actually do this, but it's not the only way. We could begin to get a kind of formula from what we're looking at these things, and um, we could say, well, people believe, they're baptised in water, and then they're baptised in the Holy Spirit. We've got it. We've got it in a box. We've got God in a box. But then God won't have that. And we have a remarkable story in Acts chapter 10 of Peter with some of his companions going to the house of a Roman centurion called Cornelius. Um, Peter didn't want to go at first when God told him. Uh, because he said, you know, Jews don't go to the house of, of Gentiles. They're not cl we don't consider them clean. But God persuaded him through a vision that he should go. And so he goes to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was expecting him to come. And he'd gathered his friends and relatives to hear what Peter had to say. And Peter preached about Jesus to them. And then we read... While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that was the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? just as we have. Unlike the believers in Ephesus and Samaria, these believers received the Spirit as they believed. So we must conclude that it is possible to receive the fullness of the Spirit um, when we believe. But note that with these three incidents, there is some common type of language that's used, and it's quite important um, to describe what is happening. We have phrases like, came on them, fell on them, poured out. Which brings me to my third point, the manifestation of the Spirit. And by that I mean something happens. Something happens. With the incidents we're considering, either uh, they were aware, the people concerned were aware that something happened, or others present were aware. At Ephesus and the house of Cornelius, they spoke in tongues and prophesied and praised God. At Samaria, an eyewitness who happened to be a sorcerer, um, a magician named Simon, saw what was happening and wanted some of the action. And what we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. For this he got a sharp rebuke 
from Peter. But the fact remains, he saw something. Something happened. Now, regarding when people re receive the Holy Spirit, um, there are different views. And um, I, I mentioned a, f a few weeks ago when I was talking about um, my experience in the, the time when the birth of the charismatic movement, when people were being baptized in the Spirit and churches uh, were being transformed, uh, people were embracing this, this doctrine of baptism in the Spirit, I said that there were some objections voiced then, which may still be an issue with some people today. One is the belief that the Holy Spirit is received at conversion, and anything else that happens is just an outworking of that. In other words, you get it all at conversion. Now, it's absolutely true that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Paul told the church at Rome, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That's Romans 8, verse 9. And around the time of our conversion, the Holy Spirit is very active. The Holy Spirit is often at work before conversion, bringing us a conviction of sin, and a, a conviction that we need to be saved, that we need a saviour. The Holy Spirit is active when we are converted. Jesus said that we need to be born naturally and we need to be born of the Spirit. We need to be born again by the Spirit. We need to be made new people and that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And also that we have an inner witness of the Spirit that we are children of God. That's what Paul says, that the spirit within cries, Abba, Father, because we know that we're God's children, that we belong to him, that he's our father. And that's an inner witness of the spirit. So the Holy Spirit is very much at work in the lives of believers, and particularly around conversion. But um, although um, you know, the, this particular experience uh, of the Holy Spirit um, is uh, very real at that time. We could sum, sum it up, this activity, by saying that it's an, a private, internal work of the Spirit. But what happened at Pentecost, the promise of the Father, which was for all believers, was something that clearly affected them externally and others were aware of it. Um, so dramatic was this first outpouring of the believers on the day of Pentecost that they were ac accused by the crowd of being drunk. And Peter stood up and said, um, these men are not drunk as you suppose, it's the wrong time of the day to get drunk. But this was in fulfilment of what was prophesied and, and promised by the prophet Joel. Um, Nicky Gumbel has a, 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 a helpful illustration of the difference between the indwelling spirit at conversion and what happens uh, when we're baptised in the spirit. He said that it's like us being a, a, a gas boiler with the pilot light, a light, all right, and it's constant there, it's a constant light. But when there's a call for heat, the gas valve opens and there's a whoosh and the full power comes on. And he said, that's just like it is with us. We have the Holy Spirit, but we may not have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And just want to say also that there can be more than one filling. Although in the main, the accounts of the Holy Spirit 
coming on people in the Acts of the Apostles relate to the initial experience of receiving the Spirit, we also see that it can be a repeated experience. Uh, for example, Peter, who was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, um, it's recorded on two other occasions when he was filled with the Spirit. And in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, um, we have this command. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. All right. Which it, The language is the present continuous tense, urging us to go on being filled with the Spirit. There is more. Let's not be content with the one filling, but to seek God daily for a filling of the Holy Spirit. So I hope you've seen that from these scriptures that as a true believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. But the fact is, it's possible that you have not been baptised in the Spirit, or whatever language you would use for that. Also, that having been baptised in the Spirit, that you can go on being filled with the Spirit. So in answer to our question, have we got it all? Did we get it all at conversion? The answer is no, there is more. And let's face it, there is always more with God. God always has more for us. Just listen to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher at Westminster Chapel in the last century. He was there for almost 30 years. People used to travel from all around to hear this man preach. And he says this, There is nothing, I am convinced, that so quenches the Spirit as the teaching which identifies the baptism of the Holy Ghost with regeneration, that is, becoming a Christian. But it is very commonly held today. Indeed, it has been the popular view for many years. It is said that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is non-experimental, that is, you don't experience anything that it happens to everyone at regeneration. So we say, oh well, I'm already baptised with the Spirit. It happened when I was born again. At my conversion, there's nothing for me to seek. I've got it all. Got it all? Well, if you've got it all, I simply ask in the name of God, why are you as you are? If you've got it all, why are you so unlike the apostles? Why are you so unlike the New Testament Christians. So as we kind of bring these things to, to, towards a, 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 an, an end, how do we receive this gift? It is a gift, it's very clear. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God. And it's like every gift, it's not earned or deserved. It is received by faith in what God has promised. It's not just for super-Christians, for the mature Right? It's not a reward for good service. And if you think about the people that we've been reading about in, in the Acts of the Apostles, some of them were only uh, become Christians momentarily before they were baptised in the Spirit. Others, it was only a few days that they waited. They had no time to prove themselves with God because it is a gift. It's a grace gift from God. But there are two conditions that... I think we need to fulfill. The first is that we need to be thirsty. Right? It's something that we need to want and long for. The second thing is that we ask God for it. And I'll just read a couple of scriptures to illustrate that. John seven thirty seven, 
on the last day of the feast, Jesus is in the temple, last day of the feast, a great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He has been glorified, and the Holy Spirit has been given. And then in Luke 11, Which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? So we need to be thirsty and we need to ask. If you're thirsty for more of God and want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, then in a moment we're going to um, sing a song and I'll invite you to come forward and we will lay hands on you and pray for you. But I want you to know you're not coming to us. Uh, You're coming to the Lord Jesus. You're coming to him. As he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's who you're coming to. You need to be looking uh, to Jesus. And come expecting something to happen. Now whilst not all Christians speak in tongues, and it's not a necessary sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul's desire was that everyone should. He said, I speak in tongues more than any of you. And I would that you all spoke in tongues. And my experience is that those who have desired this gift receive it. Maybe not at the time they're prayed for, but very soon afterwards, because God just loves to give gifts. So, what what is speaking in tongues? Let me say what it's not. Uh, A few years ago, um, I talked to one of my neighbours, and when he discovered that I was a Christian and um, that I went to church, he said, "Um, do you go to one of those churches where everybody goes into a trance and, and they all start making funny noises. And I had to explain, <laughs> explain to him. And I said, no. I said, what you're talking about is perhaps speaking in tongues. And it's like normal speech. It's in the control of the speaker. But it is a language that we haven't learned. It's a language and that we don't fully understand. We don't actually understand any words that we're saying. We may have a, a sense of what, that, what it's about, but we don't actually understand it. And um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 tells us quite a lot about, uh, about speaking in tongues. He says that it's a prayer or praise language. He says, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. He says that it comes from our spirit and not our mind. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Normally when we speak, although it's subconscious, our mind is directing what we're saying. It's our mind connecting. Okay? And most people um, engage their mind when they speak. Not, not everybody, but most people do. Okay? But it, 
But in this case, Paul says, your mind is unfruitful. Um, you're, not, you're not thinking about what you're saying. You're allowing your spirit to express something um, that comes from deep within. And God gives us this language to enable us to do that. You can say, well, how can you express something unless you know the words? Well, let me give you a, a simple example. If I go, <sighs> I haven't said anything, but I've expressed something. Either I'm satisfied, frustrated, or something else. But I've sighed. It, it's a sigh that comes from deep within, isn't it? And it's just like that. Now, as we begin to speak, God helps us uh, and enables us. Um, many years ago, at this time that I was talking about, when uh, there was a, a renewal in the Holy Spirit and so much was happening in the church, I went to a meeting um, uh, up in London with a friend and uh, we were a bit late so we, were, we had to go sit and sit down the front and it's this lovely time of worship something I hadn't experienced before just a, sing, a, a simple time of worship simple words of, of love songs to Jesus and during this time I just felt a total overwhelming of, of, of the love of God and tears were pouring down my, my cheeks you know and um, anyway, I, I went home and I concluded that that was my baptism in the Holy Spirit. But I hasn't at that stage spoken in tongues, but I believed that it was available to me. And soon after that, I was going on business up to Scotland and I was on a train and um, I was in a compartment on my own. I thought, fantastic, I've got this journey and I'm on my own in this compartment and I was reading the scriptures and worshipping God and I began to speak, and it began to happen, and I was really enjoying myself until I realised that the ticket collector was standing at the door uh, <laughs> waiting, to, waiting to punch my ticket. Um, he must have thought blooming foreigners, you know, that's how I did it. But, <laughs> but, but you, might, you might ask, what is, it, what is it for? You might say, I'm quite happy speaking in English. I don't... I don't want all this, you know, I, what, what's, it, what's it for? Well, first of all, let's say that if it's a gift from God, it's a good gift. All right, God doesn't give us, you know, a snake or a scorpion, does he? He gives us good <coughs> gifts, all right? So that's the first thing. But what's it for? Well, um, as I said, we're speaking to God. So it's a form of worship or praise and I liken it to this, that as when we're worshipping and speaking in our normal tongue, English, uh, and we're, we're, we're full of praise to God, when we begin to run out, run out of words, we haven't run out of a, 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 you know, a, a desire to praise God. And it's a wonderful opportunity just to speak out and to, to praise God in a language that, that we haven't learned. And Paul tells us that when we use this language to commune with God that we're actually building ourselves up. We're strengthening our faith. Um, he says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. So if we find a new way to commune with God, it's inevitable that it is going to strengthen our faith, isn't it? It may happen spontaneously as we pray and lay hands on you. Or, it, or you may need to take a step of faith and begin to speak, as I did on the train. I had to start speaking before it actually happened. 
And it may be just a few syllables at first and it's very easy to say, oh well, it, that's nothing, it's nothing much. But it will always start that way. And then as you begin to continue to speak, then you will become more fluent in it. And we don't need to wait for God to initiate something. Right? Sometimes we're inclined to stand and say, okay God, you do it. Well, God doesn't speak in tongues, we do. And sometimes we just have to take that step of faith and begin to speak. Uh, there's a lovely illustration, really, that we can use of, of uh, a time with the disciples and Jesus. Jesus sent them out on the lake, and um, he wasn't with them on this occasion. And they went out on the lake, and it was night, and it was, it was a, a, quite a storm. It was very rough. And Jesus came walking to them on the water. And... Um, uh, they, were, they were fearful at first, but then they realized it was Jesus and, and uh, that, that uh, made them more, more calm. But, but when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, he said, Lord, call me to come to you and walk on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter actually stepped out of the boat and began to walk on the water. Now, Jesus didn't come to Peter and grab hold of his feet and his legs and place them on the water. Peter had to begin to walk on the water before he knew that it would happen. Jesus said, come, you come. And, G and, and Peter did. He walked on the water. And the same really is often um, when we receive the Holy Spirit and we desire to speak in tongues. We need to speak. We need to begin to speak. And God will help us in that. Right, that's the end of talking. Um, we're going to sing a song and um, I'll ask the...